We appreciate the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I always appreciate Dr. May and his willingness to share his pulpit. Many pastors don't do that, uh, but Dr. May has a great servant's heart, and uh, we're appreciative of it, and uh, so glad he's being able to take some time off. The pastorate can be very tough. Uh, it can be really, really tough, so we need to always pray and lift up the leaders of our church that God would strengthen them, give them wisdom and insight, durability, very soft hearts, and sometimes very thick skins. So uh, we appreciate what they do. This morning I want to speak out of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of those great books. A lot of people write about Christian leadership, and they talk about what it means to be a leader in the Christian faith. I personally don't necessarily agree with that philosophy. Because the Bible doesn't talk about Christian leaders, it talks about servants. When Paul was saved by Jesus and at the end of his career he writes to Timothy, he, he doesn't say there in 1 Timothy, God made me a leader. He said, God, I mean Christ, he said, Christ, put me into service. And Paul referred to himself as a servant, and the Greek word there meant slave. So when people ask me, how do you become a great Christian leader? Uh, you really don't. You become a great Christian servant. And I tell people at our school, we don't have any executives. We have one executive. He lives in heaven. The rest of us are servants. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do. It is, as a matter of fact, when you look at the gifts of the Spirit, the word leadership isn't mentioned there at all. When you look at the offices that God gives to the church, the word leader is not there at all. Paul even says there are many ministries, but the same spirit. One becomes a leader because that's what God does through his grace. And we have to be careful that leadership is not something we give. It is something God gives to us because of his imminent and unsearchable grace to make us into what we need to be. I'm going to speak out of Nehemiah chapter 1, and I want to share a story with you. Robert George, who has a, um, a law degree from Harvard, and he has a, a doctor of philosophy from Oxford, is a Christian who teaches at Princeton. And Dr. George wrote a book, and he talked about what Christian colleges should be. He said there are three options for Christian colleges. And I want to take that, there are really only three options, and I'll use his, for any Christian. He said, how does a Christian encounter the world in which we live in? And he gives three options. The first, he said, is you can be an isolationist. I'm going to take my Bible and go home and not interact. Nobody believes right. Nobody's acting right but me. And so I'm going to take a bunker mentality and go home and I'm going to hide in the house till Jesus comes and I'm hoping to have enough freeze-dried food to last. That's one option. I'm taking my theology and going home. The second option, uh, Dr. George says, is you can assimilate. The world is so bad, the world is moving away, and I recognize it, but some of my best friends don't believe the Bible or they believe the superficial part that they can get by with. So in order not to make my wife mad, husband mad, mom-in-law mad, son-in-law mad, son mad, I'll believe just enough of the Bible to get by. And what I really don't want to put into my life, 
I won't worry about it. I'll become just like they are with a very fine Christian veneer. I used to call it Christian shellac, but only old people know what shellac is. The third option, which is what George says Christians should do, is to engage the culture. Be what the Bible says we should be. Whether it hurts culture or not, whether it makes mom-in-law mad or not, she's going to get mad anyway. Whether it makes son, daughter, be authentic to the Bible, not what people think we should be. Now that part, George points out, is going to cause just a wee bit of controversy even in your own family. But it's the way we should be. It's the way Nehemiah was. Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to read verse 4 through 11. Nehemiah is in captivity with the rest of the Israelites. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar took them away to captivity. Babylon was eventually overthrown by the Persians. And now a king named Artaxerxes is ruler over all of the kingdom, including the Jews who are there. Nehemiah is a Jew. The Jews have been allowed to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but it is unprotected because the wall by royal decree could not be built back. Nehemiah hears that it is unprotected, and this is where he begins in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and lo with loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying to you today, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have also sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there, will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, meaning the king, Persian king Artaxerxes. To be one who serves God faithfully, to be one who is in tune with the mind and heart of God, truly to be one after God's own heart, how do we do it? The first thing is we have to pray. And this sermon's really about prayer, and it's about Nehemiah's prayer before God. Nehemiah, as you know, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and they did it in 55 days. That's pretty good, isn't it? 
They got them up. They worked night and day. They had enemies over here trying to pull them away. And in 55 days, they accomplished a great feat. Now, does anybody know how long Nehemiah prayed? Said he was fasting. Said it happened in the month Chislev. Then when you go over to chapter 2, it says in the month Nisan, he prayed about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem five months. 55 days to undertake the action, five months to prepare his heart and mind and seek the blessing of God to bring about everything. Prayer must be pretty important, hadn't it? And so Nehemiah recognizes his role. He is cupbearer to the king. That means he approved all of the food and all the things the kings consumed. He was a truster advisor, although a foreigner, he was a trusted advisor to the king. The king listened to him, the king loved him, and the king gave him great power and authority. Yet this man of power and authority got on his knees because he recognized that the living God is the one who grants prayer. The living God is the one who opens the hearts and minds of people to make decisions, and the living God would be the one who opened the heart of King Artaxerxes, who had already declared that the wall of Jerusalem would not be rebuilt. He will open his mind and heart, and it was done on the knees in his own room. The first thing he looks at when he prays, he gives a uh, reflection upon his own self-worth. A lot of people think they're worth a very lot, and they're not opposed to telling you and I about it. The Bible talks about the humble mind, the humble heart. This is Nehemiah. He says, I was a servant. I was, verse 4, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He sees himself not as the awesome advisor to the Persian king, but as the servant of the living God. You see, our life's purpose is derived from what God wants for us. There are only two ways to live. What does God say? Am I going to accept it? And then am I going to live it? The other option is, what does anybody in the world but God say? How does that affect me? and how I'm going to live. In other words, live any way I want to with my own opinions, my own thoughts, my own sources, or do I take the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit incorporate it into my life so that I am changed? It is true that we can come just as we are to Christ, but we cannot leave the same. It is true God loves us. It is true that God loves us in spite of our sin, but he does not accept us and send us to his heavenly kingdom in the same condition. Jesus even told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nehemiah's heart was right. Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah has the right attitude. I want you to read even what the New Testament says. This is what Paul writes. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul said, we are to be like that. And notice the gap of hundreds of years between Nehemiah and Paul. It is the same. Nehemiah lived nearly 2,500 years ago, yet God calls us to be servants like Nehemiah and engage in prayer. And the way to do that is to look at ourselves. How many of y'all like to stand in front of a mirror? I mean, really, I mean, an accurate mirror, not those that have the clothing store that makes everybody look smaller. I went to one of those. I look pretty good, but that wasn't me. Nobody likes to do self-inspection. I don't like to do it, but it is the only way that we get a true picture of who we are. The Bible already says who we are. We must acknowledge it. The word confession comes from a Greek word that means say the same thing. In other words, agree with God on who we are. Nehemiah does that. Did you know Nehemiah, in this passage, he uses the word servant or servants eight times. He understood who he was. He reflects upon who he is. Even the Bible says this, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. This is the plan of God, that we prosper in his will, not our will. So the worldview must be, Lord, what do you say about me? I believe it, now make me into the person I need to be, regardless of what my wants are, regardless of what I'm trying to get. You know the great passage in Jeremiah 29, 11? Y'all know that passage? For I know the plans I have for you. Many people use that as a prosperity guide plan for their life. That's not the meaning of that passage. First of all, some people say, well, God, look what he did for Jeremiah. That, that passage was not written to Jeremiah. He wrote it for the slaves in captivity. But let's say it applies to Jeremiah. Have you ever read what happened after 29-11? They put the man in jail twice. They burned his scroll. They threw him into a well. And the last we hear of him, he's carted off to Egypt. That doesn't sound like a personal prosperity plan, does it? In the terms of what we think. Now, if you look at it in terms of who it's written to, to the captives uh, who are with Nehemiah, who will be there, they're going to be slaves about 70 years. God looks as good for our life as his perfect will for it, not what I get out of life, the stuff. Stuff comes and goes, and they're fine, upstanding, God-fearing Christians all over the world who are going hungry today, who are sick today, but they love God more than they love themselves. The end of looking at myself as a Christian and yourself should always be that we love God's will for our lives more than we love 
creature comforts. The second thing that he does, he reflects upon the nature of God. He says in verse 5, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. You see the two words there, Lord God. How many of you have Bibles that have the word Lord in all caps? Anybody have a Bible like mine? Do you know why that's there? They put it in caps because it is the personal name of God. It is the word Yahweh. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Hebrew doesn't have vowels, so it's four consonants. And it's the word Yahweh. And if you put certain vowels from the word Lord, you get the word Jehovah out of it. It is the name that God said, don't take the name of your Lord, your God in vain. And the Jews today do not pronounce the word Yahweh. They use the word Adonai because they do not want to violate that commandment. It's held in such high esteem and regard. But it is the personal name of God. When you read the Genesis account of creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know that account where he created everything in one? The word used there is Elohim. It, means, it shows God's power. The, word, the phrase E-L, L means power. It shows the majesty of the living God in creating the universe and all of the things in it. When you get to chapter 2, when it says the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth, the name changes to this name. Yahweh, the personal God, the intimate God, not the God of awesome power, but the God who loves. It's another character of God, that God is personal, that God has wisdom. God is not just out there. He is, person, he is a person and he is personable. Where do you think laughter came from? Where do you think joy came from? Love came from, happiness satisfaction. All these came from God himself and were given to his creation as gift. God is personal. And Nehemiah in his prayer addresses God in a very personal fashion, doesn't he? It's like he's talking to his father, which is what prayer should be. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. If you notice that word loving kindness, it is a Hebrew word. It is a Hebrew word hesed and it means constant love. Love that goes on. For God so loved the world. God is love. This is the character of God that in spite of what humans do, think, or say, God's love is unchangeable. Isn't that good? I like that. It's unchangeable toward me, and I know how I am. People's love isn't that way, is it? I love you until I don't love you anymore. Did you know that? Do you know people actually put that, some people put that in their marriage vows now? Mine didn't say until love do you part. Mine said until death do you part. I think that if you're in the will of God with the right person, your love gets stronger, not weaker. And it should grow, not decline. He focuses on the Lord's person. 
He also focuses on God's forgiveness. He said, let your ear, verse 6, now be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, which your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have also sinned. Nehemiah includes himself. Sin is not what somebody else does. Sin is what we do. Usins, weans, me, and my. Years ago, I used to do marriage counseling. I do it biblically based, and sometimes people would go beyond my ability, and I would refer them out. And one of the things that I did, I would invite the husbands and wives to come to my house. That way, Ms. Dallas could sit in there. Teresa could sit in there, you know, because another woman's perspective. Two men, against, you know, against the lady seemingly. It wasn't that way, but I wanted the perception to be that, you know, here, here's somebody who can understand probably better than I do. And I would tell them, I want to write down some things as you're talking to me. And I will get rid of them after you leave. So whoever go first, I would write. And then the second one, I would write. And you know what I wrote? I wrote how many times the individual said, me and my and I, as opposed to we and our. And every time there was significant conflict, people would say, me, my, and I, far more than we and our. Bible says that when a man gets married to his wife, you know where it says cleave together in King James, that, that Greek word means glue. You're glued together. It's literally glue. So whatever issue one has, it is us together. Nehemiah, we have sinned. We have acted corruptly. We haven't kept the commandments. He understood his own nature in focusing. Because when a human being looks at the nature of God and sees the nature of God and incorporates that into their life, the perspective on who we are changes. There was a song back in the 70s. Some of y'all were alive back in the 70s. I like this song. It was called Mr. Big Stuff. Did y'all remember that song? Mr. Big Stuff, Who Do You Think You Are? I had a guy in high school. That was Mr. Big Stuff. He thought he was the most handsome guy in the school, and I knew I was, so he couldn't have applied to him. But he would walk around, and he thought all the girls liked him, and they didn't. But he had this image of himself, much like the one you had in the king's new clothes, if you've ever read that story. He had this image of himself that was not appropriate. When we get on our prayer and on our knees in God, with God in prayer, the image of ourselves becomes very clear of who we are. And it's not just who we are, it's but what we can become through our prayer with God. He also focuses on God's willingness, as I said, to forgive. He throws God's own word back at him. He says in verse 8, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses. God, remember what you said. As if God needed to be reminded of what he said. He said, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's where they were because of their unfaithfulness. He said, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. And Nehemiah did that. He went to see King Artaxerxes and he goes in and his face is sad. It was a dangerous thing to walk into the throne room of the king with a sad face. He didn't allow that. You could be executed for that. He says to him, why are you sad? He said, why is your face sad? This is chapter 2, verse 2. Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. He was afraid because of what the king could do. But what Nehemiah had been praying, God had been focusing on the mind of the king to change it. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the thoughts of the king are like waters in the hands of God. He turns them whichever way he wants. The king allowed Nehemiah to go back to rebuild the wall. And even though his enemies came after him, the king said, let him do what I've commanded. And in 55 days, the wall was rebuilt. And you know what they did at the end of those 55 days? They opened up the Word of God and read it publicly for the joy of being brought back. The promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 was fulfilled not in the day of Jeremiah, but in the day of Nehemiah. God always keeps his word. Our role may not be to reap the fruit and the benefits. Our role may be to dig the ditches, put mortar in the blocks for the wall to be built. It may be keeping guard, but our role is important nonetheless. When Paul talks about the parts of the body and talking about Christians, he doesn't list them in any importance. He said the important part is the head, Christ. It was fulfilled. One of the joys that you and I have is that the same God who lived in the days of Nehemiah lives today. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As a Christian, I'm not just supposed to pray for myself, but to pray for others. And not just pray for them, but do good to them. That's the hard part, isn't it? Wouldn't you much rather pray for somebody that doesn't like you than to be around them? Let me illustrate this. How many of y'all live in neighborhoods, not out on 150 acres by yourself? Every neighborhood has a knucklehead. Did you know that? Every one of them. It's the one guy who doesn't like what you do at your house or the one guy that doesn't want you to cut a tree limb because he loves that tree in your yard very much or he's the one guy that doesn't like the fact that you're washing your boat in your driveway, whatever it is. There's always one. And when I lived in Charleston, we had one and he lived right beside me. And I was talking at work one day about the knucklehead that lived beside me. And one of my coworkers said, you know what? We don't have any knuckleheads in my neighborhood. I said, you don't? He said, no. I said, well, have you ever thought that you might be the knucklehead? 
He got mad. The other guy, he left, and the other guy with me says, he really, I think he is the knucklehead in the neighborhood. Sometimes it may be us who is the problem, and we have to recognize it. Whether it's in our professional life or whether our married life, but how we approach it with grace and dignity and humility comes from a relationship of years and years in the making with Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a few days of how we should be, but we have to yield ourselves to him. Paul, at the end of his life, he writes to Timothy and he says, I am the least of all believers. And he's not saying that because he wants Timothy to say, no, you're a great man. He's saying it because he remembered what he had done. He's saying it because he remembers his past. He's saying it because he realizes that without Jesus Christ, he would have died and gone to hell. He says it because he realizes that the only reason that he's on his way to heaven is through Christ. And all the years that he spent in prison, the shipwrecks, the being bitten by a poisonous snake, the being stoned, to being dragged out of a city, it was all worth it. Because if one person got saved because of what Paul did for Jesus Christ, it was worth it. And I want to encourage you in closing with that, whatever you go through in life, the ups and downs, and everybody's had them, and everybody will have them again. God, if you're in the will of God, He will honor His work through you and me, regardless of what the world thinks. As a matter of fact, we're told not to love the world or the things in the world because they are all fading away. And the new kingdom that God will create will only have those who have accepted him. If you want to be a leader, then all we have to do is be a servant, a good one, like Nehemiah. May we pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to share a bit of your word, realizing that we're not worthy to do so. Pray during these moments as... Brother Billy and others come to receive those who might want to come forward. We pray for the lost in this world. There are many people without Jesus Christ, and we pray for them. There are many, Lord, who need a touch from you. There are many who need a promise from you, and you have them all in your word because you've promised that anyone who comes to you, you would accept them through repentance and faith, change their world. And Lord God, we're most humbled through your word and realizing who you are. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.